Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. And it says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. You may please be seated. Well, again, welcome. If you, again, are new, welcome. If you've been here for a while, welcome again. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 2. If you don't have your Bibles, please raise your hand. We're going to have people coming forward that would love to get one into your hand. We don't just uh, believe that the Bible is useful for something here in this room, but we believe the Bible is the very Word of God, living and active, true, the highest source of truth, the very truth itself. And so would you please raise your hand. If you don't own a Bible, this is a gift to you. Consider this yours. Um, If you also need a Bible in Spanish, we have those. We'd love to get those to you. Uh, If you do own a Bible and you just forgot it, just leave those on the Connect desk on your way out. So as these people are handing out those Bibles, keep those hands up. I'm going to pray, and uh, we're going to get rolling in here. So let me pray for us, guys. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for coming, for entering in the story 2,000 years ago born of the Virgin Mary in an animal feeding trough, humbly in obscurity. I pray that this season would cause us to reflect and worship you in new ways, in unique ways, in deeper ways. God, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for bringing salvation. I pray that this scripture as Holy Spirit, you inspired it. Lord, give me the ability to teach it in a way that would be helpful where you would look just glorious, where I would decrease, where you would increase. Lord, we all, as Holy Spirit, you inspired the writers, uh, Matthew, to write the scripture. Give us ears to hear it, that it would change us to be the people that you're calling us to be. It's in your name we pray, King Jesus. Amen. So I'm going to need us to do a little bit of imagination this morning. And may, this isn't just because the typical worship leaders up here preaching that I'm going to have us do something creative, but I think this is going to be helpful. Imagine with me that you live in a small town away from the city, and the ruler of your region is a tyrant. Those who oppose him or are a threat to him, he kills methodically and ruthlessly. Imagine living in this world. Fear, oppression, death. Your life is hard and the world is cruel. For centuries your people have been living like this, exchanging ruler for ruler, some near, some far. You have hope, though, that one day you will be set free, more now than ever. But you get word that this evil tyrant is after you and your family. 
the worst news. Your little family can do nothing to oppose him. What is going on, you wonder. You immediately flee. You are fleeing for your life. You are on the run, and you're told that your destination is across the desert. You have heard stories of this journey, of this road. Ancestors of old crossed it. Some lived, many died. Miracles happened in that desert. Across it is an old foe. Will they receive you now? You do not know. Are you fleeing one tyrant to just go into the arms of another? You do not know, but you trust that he who sent you is faithful and true. You are forced to leave your family, your friends, your community, your entire life behind. Imagine There is danger ahead, but there is death behind, so you're forced to go, and you go in the cover of nightfall, hoping that you won't be seen. What little food and water and belongings you can just scramble together, you you pray are enough for the journey ahead. But this is the rugged, barren, desolate desert. And many miles stand between you and your destination. You have no shelter from the elements, whether it's bitter cold or brutal heat, and no protection from thieves and those who would want to do you harm. You, you, you likely pray that you can join a caravan of immigrants because maybe together you guys can be safe. You wonder, will your pursuer catch you? You are one family. He has an army. Will you survive the journey? Food and water are scarce in the desert. You have a baby child and a new mother for this journey. And after many days and many miles through that desert, you reach your destination. Likely exhausted, likely thirsty, likely hungry. And maybe the reality starts to set in. You wonder, will anyone speak my language? You are poor. You own nothing that you did not bring. You are at the mercy of those in this strange land. And it likely starts to dawn on you. You are living the life of a refugee. This story that I just painted is the story of the family of Jesus. This is the story of the family of Jesus. We have become so familiar, so inoculated, if you will, by the Advent story. Mary, Joseph, the virgin gives birth. We, the shepherds and wise men, and we become so inoculated, so familiar with it that we miss things that are standing right in front of us. Joseph was a refugee. Mary was a refugee. Jesus was a refugee. This family was fleeing persecution and certain death from Herod. Babies were killed. Families were torn apart. A community was abused. Church, this Advent story is messy and bloody and broken. And yet, yet full of hope, 
and salvation and beauty and majesty. And in all of it, God is in control. In all of it, God is in control. And see, this, this series is called Framework. Because we need to understand the context. We need to understand the background. We need to understand the frames, if you will, in which this story or this picture takes place. And we can also admit that this framework is unexpected. It's quite unexpected. A poor, unmarried girl from a nowhere place, from an uninfluential family, powerless, driven away, refugees. This is where the salvation of the world comes from. This is where the salvation of the world is born into. None of us come up with this story. No matter how creative and off the wall we are, none of us come up with this story. God enters the story like this. Not in kings, palaces, and luxury, and affluence, and power. He comes in like this. So with this vision, with this framework, with this understanding, we're going to take a, a step back to learn a little more. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew 2, starting in verse 1. It's up on the screen if you need it. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the city of David, as was prophesied, verses 5 and 6, spelled that out. And last week we spent a good chunk of time talking about this. And wise men just kind of come onto the scene. Uh, you read it, we don't get a backstory, they just kind of show up and they're there. Um, they, like the shepherds, see a star. And so these wise men, or maybe you've heard their other name, Magi, come to Jerusalem to learn more. We don't, we don't know much about them. Uh, they're likely people who practice things like astrology um, and sacred writings. You could call them spiritual gurus, if you will. And, and some scholars think, I think this is interesting, some scholars think that this, this, these wise men come from the same line of education that Daniel did in Babylon. Like Daniel in the lion's den, uh, Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel. Uh, don't want to assume we know uh, Daniel. Of course, Daniel. Um, we don't know much about them. I don't know if that's true. I think that's interesting. But we do know one thing. We do know they got one thing right, these wise men. They live up to their uh, title, if you will. They have come to worship Jesus, the true king. That's wisdom. And, and how does Herod respond to this new ruler? He doesn't exactly erupt in praise and say, good news of glad tidings of great joy for all the peoples. Praise the Lord. The Messiah has come at last. That is not exactly how he responds. He is troubled. See, Herod is a wicked and evil king. He was an evil man. His acts of brutality are well known in history. Herod had his own wife killed, had his own family members killed, his own children killed, if they were a threat. And Herod hears of this rival king and he's troubled. And what I think is interesting if you look at the text is he asks where the Christ is born. Where the Christ was prophesied. See, Herod opposes the Christ, the Messiah, because Herod's a puppet king. I don't have time to get into the political framework of, uh, of Judea and Rome in the first century. But he's a puppet king. And Herod opposes the Christ. He views him as a threat, not as a means of blessing his people and of the nations, mind you, 
but he views him as a threat who will change his way of living, who will challenge his way of life and will challenge the systems in which he has established, which don't exactly lead to the flourishing of all people to the glory of God. And therefore, he must be, Christ must be eliminated. And it would be tempting to look at Herod and be like, wow, I can't believe he would do that. That is just crazy. Why would he be troubled by the Christ? It's easy to look at with self-righteous eyes. But here's the truth, as Tim Keller says. I'm just going to read this quote. In every heart, there is a little King Herod that wants to rule and that is threatened by anything that may compromise it. I'm going to let that sit for a quick second. We long for control. We long for power. We long for influence. We long for glory. The question is not if we will pursue it, but in what context it will take place. Maybe on the sports field, maybe in the classroom, maybe in your parenting, maybe in your relationships, maybe in your workplace. I don't know, but I guarantee you we're all searching for it somewhere. We want to eliminate that which would compromise our way of life, our comfort, our joy, our privilege, our name, our approval, our control, our power. We want to eliminate that which would threaten these things. And Herod will not bend a knee to Jesus. Some of us view Jesus like Herod does. We're threatened by him. He challenges our way of life. That is a minor understatement. He calls for change. He is usurping or overthrowing our thrones. He is dismantling or tearing down our idols. And I want to ask you, be honest. Don't give me the, how you doing today? I'm doing good. And you're just dying inside. Don't give me the church like face answer here. Be honest with yourself. Is the rule and reign of Jesus over your life and over your way of life, over your life and over your way of life, is it good news or is it a threat? Is it a blessing or is it an inconvenience? Is it a joy or is it a duty? Is it a shackle or is it liberation? See, many of us want a Jesus who will simply cheer us on. We want a cheerleader Jesus who will, who will encourage us and promote our agenda and let us sit on the throne of our lives. No. See, this Jesus, this Christ, he is Lord over all. He is Lord over our entire lives and of the entire world. His jurisdiction, look at me, is not reduced to merely ruling over your heart. His jurisdiction is not merely reduced to spiritual matters. He is not merely Lord over your church attendance, of your tithing, of your Bible studies, of being nice. Jesus Christ is Lord over all of creation. All of life is all for Jesus. Abraham Kuyper says there's not a single square inch in the entirety of human existence, of the entirety of the universe over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not declare mine. Jesus is Lord of all. Your relationships, your career, your wallet, your dreams, your home, your kids, your marriage, your hobbies, your leisure, all of it belongs to Jesus, for he is Lord over all. We say all of life is all for Jesus. It's not just a cute shirt or a sign that you see in it. Oh, look, at it. it kind of arrives as the all's in there. And isn't that sweet? We actually believe it. We actually believe it. We actually believe that Jesus is Lord over all. This is not a Jesus who is merely stuffed into the spiritual, but he's Lord over all things. And for the Christian, 
all of life is a path, and I use that word intentionally, a path of surrender, repentance, change, and truly growing, truly growing in seeing this reality as good news. I have a confession to make to you. I don't always view that as good news. I do not always view the lordship of Jesus over every single aspect of my life as good news. Just because I work for a church does not mean I'm immune to idolatry. Let me confess that to you. We need to grow and sing this as good news because all of us have areas of our lives where we say, Jesus, you're not allowed to speak into that. We're trying to stuff him into a corner of our lives. For the Christian, all of life is growing and seeing his lordship over our entire life as good news. And so moving on with our story, I don't, we're not going to break down verse by verse here, but verses 7 through 10 tell us that Herod commissioned these wise men to scout out and find Jesus so that, if you look at it, so that he may worship them. Which, spoiler, is not what he's trying to do. Um, Herod is not coming to worship Jesus. The audience knows Herod's not coming to worship Jesus. He's coming to kill Jesus, right? This reminds me of a story in Judges. You did not think Judges was going to get brought up today. Uh, <laughs> it is. Um, some of you came here during Judges. How many of you guys came, were here for the Judges series? Judges was messy, bloody, broken, beautiful, awful. It was like a car crash you can't turn your eyes off of, right? It's like, oh my gosh, what is happening? And one of my favorite stories in Judges, which maybe shows some brokenness in my heart, is the story of a guy named Ehud which is an awesome name. I'm looking at parents and be like, Ehud, why is that not, you know, come on. Ehud. And Ehud is just awesome. He's got a sword strapped to his leg. He's going into this oppressive, horrible, just enormous dude. Not enormous like, like yoked. Enormous as in like he is chowing down. Enormous. And his name is Eglon, which I feel like is just appropriate, right? Like Eglon the fat king. And that's just, that's just what the Bible says. Um, and so Ehud comes in, and you're wondering, what does this have to do? I'm going to get there. Ehud comes in, closes the doors behind him to the palace, walks in and tells the king, I have a message for you. You could maybe translate, I have a gift for you. And you see where this is going. And so he closes the door. They're all alone. And the king, in his arrogance and pride, says, you know, something on the lines of, oh, good. You've come to the right place. I deserve this. Yes. What do you got for me? And he's like, I got this. Pow. It just like stabs him in the stomach. And this is where the Bible just is like, the author decided to put these details in. It says he stabbed him with the sword. It sunk into his stomach and the, and the fat like comes around it and the dung came out. It's okay to like, let that sink in. Like that's in the Bible. And the reason, the reason and some of you are like, that, you like that story? You're a monster, Stephen. And some of you are like, that's awesome. Thank you. So the reason I say that is because that reminds me of King Herod uh, saying, oh, I've come to, I want to worship Jesus. When he wants to kill Jesus. So let's get to our story. And let's pick it up in verse 11. The wise men find Jesus and they're led by the star. Verse 11. Which, let's be honest, if you didn't know that story, you're glad you know it now. Verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. See, the wise men get to Jesus and they offer the only appropriate response. They worship him. They fall down on their faces and offer Jesus their gifts. 
See, this is what we're doing every Sunday. After the sermon, we're going to respond by singing and offering our praises to King Jesus and giving our tithes and our offerings and our gift to him. We're, in a way, reenacting what the wise men did on that first, on that first advent. And notice that we need, to, we need to put first century lenses on and understand there's some things that are happening that are very intentional, that are very, they would have perked the ears of the first century audience. These are non-Jews, the wise men. These are non-Jews. These are people from like the Babylonian empire, or at least those regions. These are Babylonian strangers getting this thing right. Like they're worshiping Jesus, and the Jewish king wants to kill the Christ, right? The Jewish king wants to kill the Christ, and Babylonian spiritual gurus want to worship the Christ. That should make us go, what's going on? Like what is going on here? The irony is striking. What an unexpected story. Babylonian spiritual gurus coming to worship the king, the Christ, and the Jewish king, and notice that said all of Jerusalem with him oppose him. These wise men are a picture of the nations worshiping and bowing and bringing their gifts before King Jesus. This isn't just a nice thing. This is a symbol of these realities. This is a foretaste of the kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is not limited to one tribe, one people, one ethnos, one culture, or one race, or one generation. It is made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we had to revisit our language of tapestry. Tapestry was an event we did, and it wasn't just something nice that we put on. We believe this stuff. We believe this stuff. And when we talk about tapestry, it's about the diverse cultures, the diverse races, the diverse backgrounds, the diverse socioeconomic tiers that we are in, the diverse generations coming together, being woven together in Christ, being knit together in Christ to form something utterly beautiful. I want you to, I'm going to repeat this phrase twice because I need this to sink in. If all people, if all people are made in the image of God, then we see God most clearly in the context of diversity. If all people are made in the image of God, then we see God most clearly in the context of diversity. If you hang around people that look just like you, that have the same culture as you, the same color as you, in the same age demographic as you, in the same tax bracket as you, you are missing the character of God. We need one another, like a beautiful tapestry being woven together. We need one another that we might reflect our diverse, beautiful, creative God who made all people in his image. See, the nations are coming to bow before Jesus. Because Philippians 2 tells us that every knee will one day bow before Jesus. And Revelation 7 tells us that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be saved. And notice that in Revelation 7, it doesn't say there's just a people before God. It's not like all of the culture and the tribe and the tongue and the nation, they're in diversity coming in unity before Jesus. Every tribe, that means there's different tribes. Every tongue, that means there's different tongues. Every nation, that means there's different nations there. All being saved and redeemed by Christ. Can I get an amen? The wise men leave. Pick it up in verse 13. Now when they had departed, that's the wise men, 
Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Don't miss what's happening here. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus have to flee political persecution and certain death from King Herod. They have to leave their home. They have to leave their country, their way of life, or else die. They have to cross miles and miles of desert. Some scholars think it's 90, some think it's 400. To get to Egypt where they're told to wait. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus are refugees in Egypt. That's what they are. It's what they are. I was given the task when I, when I was told I was going to preach of Jesus the refugee. And at first I was like, wow, I feel very ill-equipped to talk about this. I feel very ignorant when it comes to a lot of this stuff. And the more I've been pressing into this, the more things that I didn't realize were standing right in front of me were standing there the whole time. And I want to define our terms because when we talk about refugee, especially in 2016, there's just been a lot of noise and not a lot of clarity. So a refugee, we just got to define our terms first, first here. A refugee is a person who has been forced to leave their country in order to escape war, persecution, or natural disaster. Jesus fits the bill. Maybe the reality that Jesus and his family were refugees should shape our posture towards refugees in the world. Spoiler, I think it should. I think it should. Also, this could get missed. Praise God for Egypt. Like, praise God for Egypt. Like, a country that welcomed them in, that harbored them in, in safety. Let me be clear, though. I have no unique insight to what, we're reading the same text here. I don't know what their conditions were like. I, I don't know how long they were there. Some scholars think it was months. Some think it's years. I, I don't know what they did in Egypt. Like they, got so, like, they got some of that wise men gold where they're like, let's go on a traveling like, situation. Let's go a caravan around Egypt. Like selfie with the pyramids. I don't know. Like I don't know what they're doing in Egypt. I don't know how long they're there. I don't know what's going on. Uh, I, I have no idea. I don't know if it was hard, if it was easy. I don't know what systems and structures Egypt had in place to receive this displaced family. But I do know this. Egypt welcomed them in. Egypt welcomed this displaced family in. Egypt was echoing Leviticus 19, which says, you can read here, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. You shall love him as yourself. Does that echo love your neighbor as yourself? I think it does. For you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Again, church, don't miss the irony. Spiritual gurus from Babylon, where Israel was exiled, like the lowest point in Israel's redemptive history is being exiled to Babylon, and they're dragged away. Their way of life is destroyed. And Babylon's coming to worship the Christ. 
And let us not miss that, that Israel's greatest slave master, Egypt, remember the Exodus story, remember Moses, like Egypt, that same Egypt is where they're going to find freedom. Like, this is unexpected. This is wild. This is crazy. Our first century ears would have been like, what is going on here? The Exodus reversal is profound. They are not fleeing from Egypt. They're fleeing to Egypt. The Christ is safer in Egypt than he is in Israel. That's crazy. That is profound. It is ridiculous. And guys, we need to come to grips with something. We need to come to grips with something that's hard for me to say, but it's important, and I think we're going to wrestle with it. And I'm okay with making some of us in the room uncomfortable. I want to revisit a quote that Dave shared two weeks ago by a guy named Brian Zond. I have no idea how you say his last name. Zond. And he says this. I'm going to expound on what Dave shared a little bit. Imagine a history of colonial America written by Cherokee Indians and African slaves. That would be a different way of telling the story. Absolutely. And that's what the Bible does. It's the story of Egypt told by the slaves, the story of Babylon told by the exiles, the story of Rome told by the occupied. And that's the challenge I face reading the Bible. Tune in here. I'm not the Galilean peasant. Who am I kidding? I'm the Roman in his villa, and I need to be honest about it. Then he brings this. There's nothing necessarily wrong with being a relatively well-off white American male. But I better be humble, hospitable, and generous. We need to be honest with ourselves, church. We are Egypt. We are Babylon. We are Rome. We are the affluent. We are the powerful. We are the wealthy. I don't care if you're on welfare or a college student here. Every one of us in the room lives at a lifestyle that kings of old did not even know was possible. Every one of us. We live in the wealthiest country in the history of the world with more resources and capital and goods and cash and information at our disposal and our consumption than any nation in history. I'm not calling us to feel guilty about that. Not one bit. But I will ask you a question. Will we deploy this unprecedented affluence for our selfish gain? Or for others' good. The Luke principle applies here, which says, to whom much has been given, much will be demanded. Which is another way of asking, are you being a good steward? This is a stewardship question. Will we steward? I don't want to assume we know what that word means. Will we utilize? Will we use? Will we take responsibility to use what God has given us? Because not one of us chose to be born here. Not one of us chose to be born in this century. We had no say in that. And I'm not calling anybody to feel guilty about that. But I am calling us, every one of us, will we utilize what we have been given by God for his glory and others' good, which will produce a joy in us, or will we use it for merely our leisure and enjoyment and consumption? God loves the poor. God loves the refugee and the foreigner, as Deuteronomy 10 spells out. God loves the oppressed. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. Let us not forget what we just heard in our last sermon series. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are the merciful. Let us be reminded 
elsewhere of the words of Jesus. Matthew 25 spells this out. And don't become inoculated to this. Many of us, we've heard this section of Scripture. We can say it, we could recite it, and it rolls off our tongues, but it hasn't permeated our hearts. Jesus meant what he said here. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I, that's still Jesus, was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. When we serve the poor, when we serve the needy, when we, when we serve the imprisoned, we're serving God. We're serving Jesus. When we realize, don't miss this, when we realize that spiritually, apart from Christ, we are poor, bankrupt, dirty, and blind, it compels us to have compassion on those who physically are. When we realize that we were enslaved, homeless, strangers to the ways of God, it changes the way that we view those who physically are. When we realize that we were an enemy of God, it changes the way how we view our enemies. In God, we received refuge. In God, we received safety. In God, we received salvation. In God, we received refuge. That changes the way we view the refugee. This is all directly tied to the gospel, directly tied to who we are in Christ, what God has done for us in Christ. See, the paramount Christian ethic is love. The paramount Christian ethic is love. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as... Love your neighbor as yourself. Let the good Samaritan be our guide. The, the stranger on the side of the road, the religious people walk on by, and a Samaritan, a foreigner, somebody who's the lowest of society comes by and heals him and helps him and gets him on his feet and serves him and loves him. And he said, which one was the neighbor? The Samaritan, the good Samaritan. Questions of, does the man on the side of the road deserve help? Is the man dangerous? What will this cost me? All take a back seat to. I'm not saying those questions are dumb. I'm not saying those questions shouldn't be answered, should not be asked. But they all take a back seat. Every single one of them. To the question, how can I sacrificially love my neighbor as God has loved me? How can I love my neighbor as God has loved me? Who's our neighbor? The answer is everyone. How am I called to love my neighbor as God has loved me? He doesn't deserve the love. He doesn't deserve the help. Neither did we. God saved us. He initiated with us. He called us. We didn't deserve it. We were ill-deserving and undeserving. She got herself into that mess, so she needs to get herself out of that mess. Are you kidding me? We got ourselves into this mess. It's called sin. We're sinners by nature and by choice. 
We got ourselves into this mess, and Jesus got about us out of the mess. That's the gospel, amen? That's how we're called to love our neighbor. The one who doesn't deserve it. The one who got themselves into that mess. It could be dangerous. It could cost me something. It cost Jesus his life. It was certainly dangerous for him to save us, to love us, to bring us into the family of God. It cost him his life. There are there are enemy, that man on the side of the road, that one coming over the border. There are enemy. We were enemies of God. We were enemies of God. And he loved us and saved us and made us an enemy and turned us into a son or a daughter. He died for his enemy and he calls us to love our enemies. So many Christians I've seen have taken the Christian ethic of love and put it on the shelf when it comes to refugees and immigrants and those unlike us. And it is incredibly troubling to me. I see things and I go, Jesus is calling us to love our neighbor as ourself. And again, the list of questions I list are not dumb. But they take a back seat to how God has loved us and we are to do likewise. This is what we are called to, church. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying it is very hard. And I'm saying it likely will be costly. The person likely will be ill-deserving. The person likely will have gotten themselves in this mess. The person very well likely may be an enemy of ours. None of that is a disqualifier to love. So what now? I am calling us to a Christ-like love, a Christ-like compassion, a Christ-like generosity, a Christ-like laying down of self-interest for the sake of the other. I'm going to put out a challenge. I don't think any of us have gone bankrupt from being too generous. None of us have. Paul says in Philippians 2, we'll be right here. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Paul meant that. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I want to be, I didn't make this clear. I am preaching to myself here in every way. What I am saying convicts me because I know what my bank account, what my spare room, what my budget looks like. How would our posture change towards our neighbor if we saturated ourselves in Philippians 2? If we saturated ourselves in viewing others as more significant than ourselves, as not looking only to our own interests, but to the interest of others. Christ is calling us to that. To have church, he's calling us to have a posture of hospitality and welcoming. We do a welcome at the beginning of this service because God has welcomed us. So we welcome one another. We're called to empathize and enter in, to extend grace and generosity, especially to those who don't deserve it, especially to those who are suffering, especially to those who are marginalized, especially to the poor, the stranger, and the refugee. 
And I don't just want to leave us in a place of just conviction without ideas of what to do. I, I don't know how helpful that would be. I trust the Spirit would move, but I also feel compelled to inspire and maybe creatively think about some ways that we can actually love our neighbor, tangibly, practically. As an RC, if you're not an RC, get one. Get into one. Go and serve at a school. There are many teachers here. That, there are many refugee kids that are, that are in schools in this city. Go to an apartment complex. Go up Alvernon and you'll see refugee families walking up the road. Go to an apartment complex. Play with the kids. Throw a baby shower for a refugee family like the Tovars and the Hendersons did. It was beautiful. This family came over and they threw them this baby shower. At our end of uh, the year, Redemption Community, that's what RC stands for, party. This family came, they swam with us, They're, they were a part of our community. It was a beautiful thing. What would that look like? Some of you who have gifts of hospitality to, to do something like that. Attend an orientation. Let's get educated on the issues. Turn on the news and see these kids who are pulled out of rubble who are crying, longing, asking, where's mom and dad? Longing for this. They're pulled out of their and weep. Let your heart break. Get angry over injustice. Listen to an immigrant story. Have you ever heard one? Listen to the struggle. Listen to why would somebody strap themselves and hang on the bottom of a bus for eight hours to get into this country? Let's at least listen to the story. Shift our perspective from viewing refugees as a cause to a people made in the image of God. Advocate. Help at the grocery store. If you've shopped at the Fry's on Grant and Euclid, you've seen refugees there. Advocate. Help. Translate. Stand the gap. Mediate. Lend a ride. Be a friend. As a family or as a community, brainstorm of creative ways you can do ministry and love with people and not just for them and to them. Do, do one of my favorite things we do is something called a peace feast. Go as a family. Go as an RC. Go to a refugee-owned restaurant. Come and talk to me. I'll give you a list of them. Go there. Ask the owner questions and listen. Go to the park. Go down to Santa Rita. Five, six blocks this way. And sit with the homeless. We were talking about this as an RC. And eat with them. Get your hands dirty. Don't just give them a sandwich and peace out. Eat with them. Hear their stories. I don't know what your specific action point is. I don't know that. I, I trust the Holy Spirit will compel and guide and convict you of that. And I don't know what specific political policies need to be in place. I don't know that. But I do know that Christ calls our posture, church, to be sacrificial love, costly love. That I do know. I'm not talking policies. I'm talking posture here, church. And I trust that those who have a posture of sacrificial, godly, Christ-like love will make really, really just policies. So in closing... Verses, we're not going to read them, but verses 16 through 18 of our story spell out that these wise men, they leave. Mary, Joseph, Jesus, they flee. And Herod is enraged, knowing he was tricked. And he kills the baby boys in Bethlehem. It is tragic. It is not right. 
It is not the way it's supposed to be. But even in this horror, we see glimpses of redemption and echoes of salvation. These boys give a foretaste of Jesus and his cross. These children did not deserve to die, and yet they are murdered. These children lay down their life, and another lives. The innocent is killed by the guilty, and all of that echoes the cross. Jesus sacrifices himself so that we might have life. He is rejected on the cross, and he's rejected at the inn. There is no room for you, Mary. There is no room for you, Joseph. There is no room for you, Jesus. He's rejected on the cross. He's rejected at the inn so that we can be received by the Father. He flees from Herod so that we can run to God. He died the ultimate unjust death, the righteous for the unrighteous. He died the death that we sinners should have died. For the wages of sin is death. He died to put death to death on that cross. And he rose again from that tomb, conquering sin, death, and Satan. That is good news, church, is it not? Jesus rose from death, conquering sin, Satan, and death. And this is ultimately what Advent is all about. Is looking back to the conquering, suffering servant, the sacrificial lamb, who is the triumphant king, and looking ahead to when he will come again and set the world right. Personally, I believe these baby boys from Bethlehem, I believe they're strong men in the kingdom. And I look forward to the restored world when we will all run, sing, eat, and laugh together. I know some of us in the room have suffered loss like this from miscarriages and the like. I look forward to meeting your child in the new kingdom strong. And until that day, we say, come, Lord Jesus. Come again. Advent again. What a day that'll be, church. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you that your gospel is indeed that good news. Gospel, good news. Jesus, thank you for coming and putting death to death, putting sin to death. Lord, and you call your people to use what you have given them to honor you, to glorify you in every way. I pray that all of us would not feel guilty about being born in this country at this time, but we would use what we've been given to serve and love others. Help us to honor you in all that we do, in all that we have, in all that we say, in all that we are. Help us to respond to you now with everything for all of life, Jesus, is all for you. We look forward to when you'll come again, set the world right. Come, Lord Jesus, come. It's in your name we pray. Amen.